Hello and welcome to the Construction Corner Podcast. I'm Dylan, I'm your host, and today we've got a special guest for you. He is a return guest, one of our first return guests on the show, and I think we're probably gonna make him a regular. We like him, I like hanging out with him, so we're gonna make Eric one of our probably regular guests talking healthcare and other construction stuff. But first guys, if you like the show, if you found this useful, the information you got, helpful you know give us a like give us a share tell a friend we'd love for the show to grow and for more within the construction industry to get these tips and tricks to help you grow so once again like to welcome eric keller to the show who's been helping hospitals and healthcare for over a decade and really done everything on the construction side within hospitals from you know MEP, MedGas, Rated Walls, and all things NFPA 101. So Eric's now his focus is in compliance and helping you deal with your AHJs and smooth waters within healthcare environments. Eric, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me back. I must have did something right the first time. <laughs> Pleasure being here, my friend. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, healthcare is one of those unique environments there. It's a big industry and really it's probably top in the news and people probably know more about hospitals today than they did uh, six months ago. Oh, more than they'd ever cared to know, I'm sure. <laughs> and you know, through our conversations offline and even some in the last episode, we wanted to get a little more specific. Last time we covered a lot of kind of general conditions that you might want to know within the hospital environment, but let's get into some specifics. And why don't we start with one of the most critical areas of the hospital, and hopefully you never have to see the inside of one of these. Granted, you're probably passed out if you ever do, but Let's talk about operating rooms, ORs. What are some of the big characteristics of an operating room? Yeah, so I mean, when anybody thinks of an operating room, I mean, like you had indicated towards, you're typically asleep, so you have no idea what's going on in there. Um, so in regards to what they look like, you think of operating rooms, and that's really where hospitals make the bulk of their money. So from a cash flow perspective, that's why it was COVID's been such an impact to hospitals is due to the fact that they had to shut down all of their elective surgeries. Um, so the bulk of their ORs were indisposed for a period of time. So that is an area that they don't like to have shut down frequently. So it's a very critical piece to hospital operations. And real quick on yep. elective surgeries. So when you think elective, or at least I did, and I heard an interview lately that kind of reclassified this in my mind. You think elective, you think plastic surgery, right? Like right. you kind of, you need this and it's cosmetic, right? Or, or you don't need it, cosmetic. But what are some of what they would consider, quote, elective surgeries? So it's really, that's nothing that's critical to life. So is your life in jeopardy if you don't have this surgery, for instance, a knee surgery? Are you going to die due to the fact that you don't have a knee surgery right now? No. Uh, so they'll push it off. So similar things to like that. Um, 
those are the things that would take place in regards to calling in an elective surgery. Now, if you had to have had a heart attack and had to have open heart surgery, that's a different story. That's gonna, that is gonna happen because it's, it's critical to the life and safety of that particular patient. So that's really the defining factor. Um, so do you really need to have cataract surgery right now? Not necessarily, because it's not life-threatening. So it really, that's kind of the defining factor in regards to what they call um, necessary or not, so. Yeah, which was pretty eye-opening for me in that, you know, like hips, knees, any joint replacement, you know, maybe you tore a shoulder and like, are you gonna die? Probably not, but is your quality of life gonna be down? pretty significantly in most of these cases. So there's a lot of, you know, quote, elective surgeries that are huge quality of life boosters that aren't happening right now that you, when you hear elective, or at least when I heard elective, I was like, oh, it's just all the plastic surgeries. And that's not yeah. even close <laughs> to what it is. Everybody's still getting stuff done. People are getting knees, people are getting hips. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, you think about, the impact of how many of those go on uh, every single day. I mean, I, I couldn't tell you any facts and figures in regards to numbers, but there, there, there are a lot of surgeries that electively were not happening. So from a patient population and the cash flow for hospitals, it was, it was, it was tough. Yeah. I mean, and I don't have any distinct numbers, but one of the projects that I worked on, we did a 30 OR renovation and we took down five at a time. And that was even like crazy. I mean, the, the amount of scheduling they had to do, bringing in people earlier or not, and you know, shifting everything around to make that work and given sections of the whole operating you know, room and clean room department. Cause I mean, that's what it is when you have, you know, 20, 30 ORs, it is a full department block of the hospital to, you know, get all that done. And then all the recovery rooms and everything else that goes along with that, you ha really have to, you know, hone in schedule and shutting down one, let alone five at a time. And we were, you know, doing this over two, three years is it's a big, big deal for the hospitals. I mean, the amount of work and, you know, making the, the surgeons okay with it is it's an ordeal <laughs> yeah and that's something we'll touch on as we get a little bit deeper here in, in regards to construction considerations but that's something you should be talking about at design phase when you're talking about construction projects in ORs you got to get everyone's buy off on it because that is the most critical area to noise vibrations I mean think of it if you got a guy open open art surgery in the OR next door and you're hammer drilling to install some new piece of steel that's got to go in for a boom. Can you imagine the doctor getting rattled and what that, what those implications could possibly be? I mean, it is an area that takes a lot of coordination, a lot of off hours type work. If you're able to do it in that manner or shutting down certain ORs when you do certain tasks, it, it, there's a lot of coordination to your point that goes along with this. Yeah, I mean, we had, they needed to do maintenance on an air handler through this time. And luckily, we could phase everything to where we could shut down those five ORs that it handled, you know, during, during that maintenance time and, you know, had to reshift all the phases to shut down an air handler um, to deal with it. Because one thing in, well, we'll get into this, but so what are some of the other characteristics before I go into 
the <laughs> some of the design pieces of it. What else on an OR? What do you, what are some defining characteristics of of an OR? So you think of it too. So sterile environment. All the doctors and nurses and everybody are gowned up. It's not like your traditional patient floor where not every single doctor is gowned up. They just have scrubs on. So very sterile environment. The air pressure relationships are incredibly critical. So all of your ORs are, are typically all positive pressure. So they're pushing airflow outside of this, this specific space because they don't want to suck anything into the room. So throwing that off kilter is, is bad news bears. So you want to make sure your air pressure relations as you do this work are, are dialed in. Um, in addition to, it's just one of the most critical spaces to work in. So as we talked before, um, they're doing complex work from a surgery standpoint and any interruption due to construction activities, you can easily see how it can be catastrophic. So that's our responsibility as, as construction and design professionals to, to consider that and understand that before we start our projects. Absolutely. And there's within an OR like department, you know, now if you're a small rural hospital and have one, maybe two ORs, you're not going to run into this quite as much. But within, you know, something like a trauma one facility that's got 20, 30 ORs, you're also going to have sterile corridors. So in there, you know, as a average person, not a doctor, not a, you know, medical professional, when you walk through there, you've got to have, you know, all of the scrubs around your shoes, your gowns, hairnets, I mean, everything to walk through even just the hallways. So it becomes a, you know, and the doctors are all in their scrubs, they've got their special shoes, walking through their hairnets as well. Um, and then they, they do gown up when they go into it. So th th that's the other thing to remember is you do have these, a lot, like Eric mentioned, these air relationships between the OR, the sterile corridor, and then everything outside of the full OR department. Yeah, and we've had, I had one project that I worked on previously that uh, we actually gowned up to go through the sterile corridor to get to our construction space. So it's, it's, it's an interesting area to say the least to start doing construction activities in. Yeah, I mean, I had to wear the full like hazmat suit, you know. <laughs> yeah, the bunny, the bunny suit? The bunny suit, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So when we get into the ORs, and I kind of touched on this uh, a little bit, but what are some of the design considerations that you need to think about while you're going and does, well, one, designing an OR, and two, um, we could talk about this as, you know, phasing or, uh, you know, ground up construction. Most of them are not new. so. <laughs> you know, you're doing an existing ORs and upgrades, but what are some initial design considerations for an OR? So let's, we can start with mechanical. So as we've beat pretty hard already here from an air pressure relationship, that's gonna be very critical to have that dialed in. So number of air changes, what the air pressure relationship is in relation to the sterile corridor. And then after those projects are done, the hospital has to monitor that continuously. And if it ever goes out of a certain threshold, they have to stop whatever they're doing. So that's a critical piece of the puzzle to make sure that you have right from a design perspective right off the start. 
Absolutely. And uh, the other thing, there are becoming more and more requirements within hospitals on monitoring and sensors. They, they didn't always have these requirements in place. They were kind of nice to haves, but not always must haves within the hospital. But as sensors have become cheaper, controls have become fancier, it's a lot easier to do some of this. And to give you guys a example of you know, what we're looking at for air relationships and uh, how much air goes into these. So ORs are one of the most air intensive rooms you can ever have. So from a air change perspective, ORs need 20 air changes an hour. If you look at like a typical room, it's like three or four, you know, you don't need many air changes an hour, but for an OR, you're turning over the whole volume of that space 20 times. So if it's say, thousand square feet, you know, 10, 12 feet high. So you're looking at, you know, a 10,000 cubic foot room times 20, you know, you're looking at 200,000 uh, cubic feet per hour within that space. So, you, and then divide that out for CFM. But I mean, you're looking at high air volumes to run through that space. There's other ways to handle it. Um, and it really, a lot of that is you're also keeping the OR cool, and that's all for bacteria and, um, you know, infection control. Yeah, and you'd be amazed, too, from a temperature and humidity standpoint. So not only does it need to be cool for those perspectives, as you just, as you just mentioned, doctors like it cold. So I'm not sure if you've ever been in one, one of those before, um, but... I, below 60 it is cold in there when those guys are working i mean think about it they're all gowned up they've got stuff all over their face they've got masks on they've got gloves on i mean there's they got a lot of stuff on so they, they like it very cold so when you start messing with the temperatures getting down to that point you start screwing with your humidities and it's a whole whirl of wind um tumbling ball that kind of starts happening there so it's uh interesting to say the least with all the mechanical things that you have to do in those ORs and yeah. filtration and maybe you know a little bit more about that than I do I mean from a filtration standpoint I know they're even starting to put UV lights in some of the um, actual ductwork out there I haven't seen it a whole lot but I know that's starting to become a trend but just at the units themselves I just know the filter banks are ridiculous yeah for for filters, I mean, there's a lot of filters at the unit itself, plus at the air terminals going into, you have another um, high density filter at the terminal, at the air terminal going into the OR, which for any mechanical designers, now you have to look at fan speed and, you know, pressure drop relationships across these filters, because they're not like your simple uh, cheap home filter there these are very dense filters so you're gonna have more pressure drop across them so for those relationships it, it becomes you, you're gonna have a lot of fan speed to and horsepower to make that up for the pressure drop relationship across these especially to push as much air as you need to through these rooms which is ultimately why healthcare design is uh, especially for mechanical engineers if you have not done this before, it is a very, very different ball of wax from like a school or any other facility that you've ever designed for. So, you know, read through um, all the healthcare design guides because it's, it's a different ball game. 
Yeah, it's, it's complex. And the last thing I would say from a mecha mechanical perspective would be all your med gas. So understanding, have a good understanding in regards to what code allows you to do or where they allow you to place uh, zone valves and then also your alarms. So having a good understanding where those located can save you a lot of time and, and headaches later if it's found that, uh, hey, you didn't install these quite right. You got to go back, tear drywall off, reroute piping. It's, it can just be a heck of a debacle if you don't get it right the first time. Absolutely. Yeah, those are, those are the big ones where you need your uh, boxes and alarms. The other thing is for drops within the room. That is a coordination piece. You have your minimums to meet, but some doctors and surgeons would like maybe more of a certain type or need a certain type. So getting those counts correct is something that you need to make sure that you've coordinated with your surgical staff. Right, making sure it's in the right spot. So as you look at it from a constructability standpoint, you wanna bring those docks in there when you're starting to lay out that room as well, if you have the ability to. Just due to the fact that when you build an OR, it's, your ceiling's all hardwood. So you're not getting back up in there without a tremendous amount of effort. So you wanna make sure all of those booms and outlets and everything that goes in with it are in place, the right place the first time. Yeah, and I mean, for Medgas, for any of those drops, you know, even the type of cord reel that it's on is a, a big deal, which shoulder does a drop on the dock, you know, how far are those coming down? Because typically you have the same, say four, four surgeons within that OR. Granted that can change over time, but by and large, you have a few surgeons to um, make happy for any given OR. Yeah, and each surgeon's a little different in regards to how they like to work. Like you said, they like it to come over a certain shoulder. Um, and if it's not that way, it can throw them off. And they're doing some critical work to where you, they need to be happy. It needs to be right. Yeah, yeah. I know one of the biggest things in uh, kind of quirky and making them happy was the, the Muzak within the ORs. They needed their, uh, <laughs> their right music to operate under. Right? <laughs> That's the most critical piece of this whole thing. Make sure the music's right. It's just funny when you think about it. But again, if you're in there for a six, seven, eight, ten hour surgery, you know. Well, I mean, you think about what you do from a work standpoint. I, I don't know if you listen to music as you work or not. I mean, I do too. I do, but it's pretty consistent as to what I listen to. It's, it's not different because if it was different, it'd throw me off and I'd get distracted. So it's pretty specific in regards to what I'm listening to each time I'm working. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, yeah, it's just, it's always funny when I, when I heard that for the first time, I was like, why, why is this a big item on the agenda for today's design review? <laughs> oh, oh, it matters that much. <laughs> it matters. Oh man. Yeah. So from an electrical standpoint, um, when you think of code, it's going to be more along the lines of number of outlets. So there's a required, depending on what types of surgeries are happening in these specific ORs, there's, there's a requirement of number of outlets that need to be in the ORs. In addition to how many are connected to what branches of the electrical system. So those are, those are two pretty critical pieces. And then do you have line isolation panels that are going in each of the ORs? That's another beast in regards to from an installation standpoint. So um, 
those are kind of the big electrical standpoints and you probably know the electrical nuances a lot more than I do, but those are a couple of the big ones that we I've dealt with in the past. Yeah. So for outlets, I believe it's 20 that you need on the uh, perimeter walls. I think a third of those, or it's like six to eight and this could have changed need to be on emergency. So, and that's level one emergency uh, circuit. And then you have your isolation panel, which for the isolation panel, the reason that you need these, and this really just goes to the boom effectively, is for any equipment that's going to touch the patient that it basically cannot shock them, is what those isolation panels are. You can only have a certain amount of circuits on these because of how isolation panels are designed and work. They need to be pretty close, so you can only have a, depending on the panel, you need to check your distances for how much wire you can run out of these because of the resistance of the wire and then that you know create can create a potential to shock the patient because again isolation panels feeding effectively the boom which the boom has surgical equipment outlets you know that's what they're plugging their saws and drills and everything else into as well as the lights but anything that would touch the patient is coming off the boom which the boom is located in the middle over the table, it's got some big lights on it, all that great stuff. So that, that's what you'll need to look at for isolation panels. There's like two manufacturers. So you can talk to that rep specifically to work through what that looks like, as well as whoever is manufacturing the boom um, and their rep and what they're putting on it. Cause you need to outline all of those circuits specifically for the boom. Um, the next piece, so that, that handles power, then you look at lighting, there's gonna be a few big criteria that you look at in lighting and there's a few trends that we're seeing um, moving forward. So one is the, and we could talk about uh, both of these, but one is the uh, doctor's station or the nurse's station where they're gonna do all their dictation and notes. Typically you're gonna have like a small little can light on that. And the reason you don't need a lot of light is by and large, the ORs are fairly dark, except for when they're op so when they're operating, the OR itself is fairly dark. All light is concentrated straight to the table. So any light that emanates from around the table or that perimeter kind of distracts and takes away from the, the table lighting. So you'd have one smaller can in the corner for wherever that dictation station is. Um, and you'll you need to work with the casework people <laughs> and all the power that goes into, you know, with their computers, their whatever equipment that they have in that uh, doctor's and nurse's station. But for lighting, there's two big trends that we've seen. One is green lights. And I don't know, Eric, have you seen many green lights go in for OR projects that you've worked on? I haven't. What, uh, what are you seeing? So with green lights, certain doctors want a, it's a green uh, I can't I remember the wavelength for it, but um, it's a green LED light that some surgeons really like to operate under. So the, the reason for that is when you're cut into somebody, white doesn't always show everything and green provides some, in some cases, a better contrast. Um, so we would put a certain percentage of lights half of them would have green in them uh, to allow them to operate under those 
that lighting condition. So it's something that some surgeons were starting to want and ask for, and we put them in all of them. That was just something that we, we put in. Um, another thing from lighting is it's super bright. Like it's a hundred foot candles. So your typical office is 40 foot candles. It's a hundred foot candles around the table. And then they've got their surgical lights that are, the light output is insane. It's getting brighter. Um, so they can make sure that they're seeing what they need to. The, the last piece on lighting is, um, there's been a couple brands of lights that have put out. It's this, purple light again i'm blanking on the wavelength for it but it's a purple light and it's a cleaning uh light so it's in that kind of uv spectrum where after surgeries and in off hours they can turn these on and it'll uh, help to kill bacteria within that room so when no one's in there it's something that you would turn on and, and this does go to other sections of the hospital like bathrooms um, but primarily in you know very infection potentially ridden places. And if you can, yeah, the lights are more expensive, but if you can reduce a uh, medical claim or infection, then it, it saves you on the back end. So those are the kind of big trends in lighting uh, and they're ringed. So you have the HVAC right over the table. Lighting is the next pillar out. And then kind of in the corners is where your med gas goes, depending on which orientation of the table with the boom coming down right in the middle. So boom. In the middle, HVAC kind of around that, lighting around that, and then your other stuff <laughs> outside of it. There, there is a lot in that ceiling cavity. So to go back, to jump back to the boom layout conversation that we were having too. So it really depends. So if you're putting in a whole new building, ground up, it's relatively easy from a support structure standpoint. Now, when you're trying to renovate some space that used to be accommodated for gosh knows what, um, now they're making it into an OR, the steel that you have up there has to be beefed up. So those booms weigh a fair amount because they cantilever out a great deal. So it really puts quite a tension and torsion pressure, pressure back onto the, the above beams. So what we've noticed is there's been a lot of structural work that we've had to put in place in order to support these booms. And with that in mind, it starts to quickly fill the above ceiling cavity space. And as we mentioned, there is a lot going on up there and there's not a whole lot of space, especially when you start to put additional support steel up there. So that's something you want to think about, not only from a cost impact standpoint, that you will need to have some type of contingency for, for, um, additional steel that's going to need to go in place, but also from a spatial stand, standpoint, it just becomes so cluttered. It's not even funny up there. That's a really good point on the structural steel. We had to do that. And even if you're renovating an existing OR and going back and putting in new booms, new booms way more, there's more stuff in them. Um, you wouldn't think that, but they do. So with, with new booms, you need to, you're going to have to, basically look at what the weight difference is and typically it's like a couple hundred pounds um so you're gonna have to like eric said beef up that steel and then the other thing to consider is like like we talked about with how much air you're putting in here these ducts that you're pulling in are not tiny um it's a lot of air that flows in a fairly concentrated area which that boom also takes up and now you're putting steel up there 
Um, so it can be a, a big coordination thing, or you need to work with your mechanical engineer to figure out how they might be able to split some of the ducts to deal with the, the steel. Yep. Yeah, that's, I mean, we've dealt with that. I think every single OR project I've had to do, we've had to significantly beef up the steel structure, which trickled down to the fact that now we have to split duct work in order to get it to certain areas. It just became a coordination nightmare. Yeah, and you don't, so the big thing in those renovated areas, even if it's a renovated OR, you don't know what's there. Uh, most of these facilities are old enough that they don't have as-builts or the, what steel is really up there. So that's a, a big thing. When you do go back in, make sure to take pictures <laughs> and document what that new steel structure and ductwork and coordination looks like. Right. Yeah, that's a great point. And then from an architectural standpoint, so finishes, so in ORs, it needs to be cleanable. All surfaces need to be cleanable. So your paint's a little bit, di bit different. The cove base goes up the wall a little bit ways from a, from a cleanability standpoint. So everything, has the ability to be basically wiped down. The equipment that's going in there is more a stainless steel look than anything else, just from a wipe down standpoint. So um, those are considerations as, as from an architectural standpoint and then just overall sizing. So depending on what's going in there and what type of surgeries are going in there, there is code requirements in regards to how big they need to be. So with surgery centers from a sizability standpoint, I've seen a lot of instances to where they wanna fit as many ORs in an existing space that they possibly can so they can have as many doctors in there and, and get as many surgeries accomplished as possible which makes total sense but there are sizing requirements on those rooms so just keep that in mind as you start to design and build these out um, the sizing requirements that that need to happen for specific surgeries yeah and one thing is as you get through this is you know ortho surgeries are and ORs for any ortho stuff, so any, you know, bones basically, those are typically a little bigger. Um, the other thing is there are many bariatric ORs that are going in, so you're going to have a bigger table. The doors need to be wider to get those patients through the door. It's not going to be your typical, like, three-foot door. It's going to be a much bigger door to, to get them through. And the other thing from an architectural standpoint and furniture is there can be no gaps between the wall and casework. Those, that casework needs to be flush, mainly so they can clean it, right? If you have a two inch gap between casework and the wall, you can't get in there to wipe it down. So that is crucial that everything is pushed up against it. And then you coordinate with all um, air vents. So like mechanical uh, returns, which are exhausted straight to the outside, those are low so that air flows from the top all the way down to the bottom and out the bottom to keep that air kind of circling through the room. Um, so you get a, need to make sure that you're not putting equipment or storage or anything else in front of the, the mechanical return beds. Yep, that makes total sense. And then from a, I wanna just throw a couple construction tips out there uh, outside of design, just a couple of things that I ran into as, as I did these projects. So I was acting more as the project manager on site and running all the trades. Now, a couple of things that I constantly ran into is, like we said before, this is one of the most critical spaces. Really, you're in the doctor's house. Anything that they say goes. 
So when they say shut down, you shut down, you stop doing work for that period of time because they have to get their surgeries done. And then understanding your environment. So understanding that noises, vibrations, odors, dust, all that stuff can have a negative impact to the patient and also negative impact to the, the surgeon that's actually doing the surgeries. So not just you as a project manager understanding that, but trickulating that down to the carpenters and the HVAC guys and letting them know that, hey, this is a super critical space that we're working in. And if we mess up or if we, if we have too much noise going on, we need to make sure that we're stopping when we say stop. Don't just keep going because you have, oh, I just have a half a more minute to get through it. That, that's not acceptable. So setting that tone with your guys as you're, as you're on site is a, is a big proponent when you're working in these spaces. Great, great points. Yeah, I don't have much to add on the construction side, you know, but I mean, that's really it. You know, you're in a, this is not your house. Unless it's ground up, that's a different deal. But most of the time, these are renovations. Yep. And then from an hours of operation, we talked about this a little bit offline before we, we started this here, but knowing when surgeries are happening. So do they do them from 7 a.m. to 5 p.m.? Do they do them from 9 to gosh knows what time? So timing your critical activities with times when they're not in those ORs. Or one thing that we did, we met every week with all of the nursing staff. Basically, it was, it was the charge nurses above, below, to every side of us when we were doing these projects. And it was a weekly thing. And we laid out the critical tasks that we had each week and specifically called out the days we were going to have noisy vibrations and odors and dust. So they had the heads up and they could schedule surgeries around the activities that we were doing. And if they couldn't reschedule, then we rescheduled it on our end. So it was, it was a very tight communication between us and the nursing staff. So having that communication back and forth is, is super critical um, in, in having success at your construction projects in those areas. Absolutely agree. I mean, that's going to make or break your project, the level of communication and doing what you say you're going to do. Yeah. And I mean, it's some, sometimes can be a pickle. So I was just talking with one of our guys earlier today and he's got an OR project going on right now. And above him, he's got patients that are there 100% of the time. They're sleeping there. And then they're doing surgeries from basically 7 a.m. to oh, five or six. And then they've got to stop all construction activities to have quiet time post, I think it's eight or nine o'clock. So, I mean, there's a real short window that they have to be able to get certain items done. So just knowing that will help you significantly in relations to everybody that's above, below, around you from a hospital staff standpoint. And think of it this way too, for anyone that's working in hospitals. Hospitals by and large are always under construction. So what might be an inconvenience today means you still have work tomorrow. <laughs> you know, they will quickly throw you out of their hospital and off the job. So make sure that you do abide by their rules, it's their house, and if you'd like to continue working on these projects, you know, be kind. It's not 
it's not yours and there's a lot of other people that they have to care for um yeah saving yourself two minutes or whatever um can break a job yeah that's a real good point and then as you start to set your projects up defining your construction traffic routes um like we said before airflow in your area is going to be super duper important so you want to make sure you guys are always pulling negative in, into your zone and not pushing air out into different areas that could potentially be sucked up into a different OR that's fully operational and occupied during that space. So those pre-planning, figuring out where people are coming in, where people are going out, how equipment's coming in, how equipment's going out, et cetera, is very, very critical in these spaces. Yeah. I mean, even down to parking, uh, equipment storage, you know, can you really bring a toolbox in or not? you know what <laughs> what what that looks like right and there's there's some pretty cool tools out there nowadays um and when i was doing it hilti was starting to come out with some oh hammer drills that had like water attachments and vacuums on the side of them that would reduce the, the impact from a noise standpoint so there's some pretty cool tools out there that that really limit the noise the dust etc so you just got to do a little research but there's some stuff out there that's specific for really the settings that we're talking about today. And let's move to, and we'll cover kind of three here and, and that'll probably wrap up this episode, but, and I want to talk, we're going to, so we're moving from really what used to be mostly in the hospital to now you're seeing in primary care clinics, outpatient facilities, and that's CTs, x-rays, and MAMO, so mammograms. What are some of the characteristics, and let's just start with the CT, since that's probably one of the more common uh, pieces, or that we're seeing at least more often put in. What are some of the characteristics of a CT room? Yeah, so when you think of CTs or any type of larger equipment that are coming into these spaces, um, they're very high dollar equipment. They've spent a lot of capital investments to bring these in, which in the end is, is something great for the hospital. Um, but it's a very high dollar piece of equipment and you want to make sure as you guys are getting installing it that, that nothing is going to go awry. There's also a lot of vendors involved in this. So as you, as you have a traditional construction project at a hospital, say you're renovating just a patient floor, right? you'll have your traditional players in the games, your carpenters, your mechanical, your electrical, your plumbing, the guys that you always work with. As you start to incorporate bigger equipment like this, you're starting to bring in the actual vendors who supply this. Um, so you're, you're doing rough end runs for them. And as they get there, they're relying on you to have certain things done when they're not physically there on a consistent basis. So you can have significant issues with stub out locations or length of runs that they have to make in order to connect their equipment to all their panels and such that uh, really can cause you some headaches if it's, if it's not coordinated well. Um, and then really there's a whole lot of pre-work and one or two days from an install standpoint. So it's, uh, it's really quite interesting on how much pre-work goes into it for the build, big buildup of when it gets there and it's like two days, we're in, we're out, we're done and it's, and it's operational. And this goes for everybody. I mean, so the main ones for CTs, x-rays are, um, you're starting to get more players into x-rays, but for CTs, it's Siemens and GE. Those are like the two big players. 
they'll give you drawings on what it's going to look like, where it's going to go. For CTs in particular, typically you want these on a ground floor so that they're sitting on concrete. If they're on upper floors, you need to make sure you have structural, uh, take a look at it so that it can hold the weight. And you're going to punch a bunch of holes in the slab for the, the rough-ins that we talked about. Yeah, and then any equipment that's, that's, that you start to have lead lining incorporated too is a whole nother beast in its own right. Um, so understanding how far it's got to go up on the walls, uh, how what has to be on the ceiling from a lead line standpoint. I did one project where um, we had to basically lead line the floor. And we could get access to the floor from below but there was so much mechanical and electrical stuff that we couldn't, we couldn't really put lead lining in between the webs of the concrete structure. So we actually had a whole sheet of lead lining that we laid down on the floor and then we thin set over it and then put the flooring on top of it, which in hindsight is not a great idea. Uh, Cause years later, the thin set started cracking a little bit and their floor started deteriorating a little bit. So in hindsight, we would have done it differently and figured out a, a little bit better way. Maybe we would have moved some stuff around below to make it work. But uh, that's just kind of a lesson learned I wanted to throw out there to make, to make sure similar mistakes don't happen. Yeah, that's a great point, especially in um, x-rays, MRIs, Linux. You're going to get you know a lot of lead criteria, whether that's in the walls, the glass, the technician's location within that room. Um, especially for x-rays, you're going to have a technician space and that wall needs to be lead lined. It needs to have uh, certain protections from an architectural standpoint of the technician plus the glass all needs to be a, a lead lined glass. Um, and then if you have any windows in the space, those also might need to be lead lined if they would have a typical traffic around them. We did one uh, primary care facility that had a window in it, but it looked out to like a grass parking lot towards the road and it was, you know, hundred feet from the road. So we didn't have to worry about putting lead lining in that window, but if it was next to a building or looked out over something else, then you'd have to have lead lining in those as well. Yeah. We've had instances where we've had to do the glazing had to be lead lined. Um, and then also consider all your frames that go into your rooms as well. So for your door frames, your window frames, et cetera. So those will have to have the same consistency as well. And then there's always a third party that comes in and checks that from a verification standpoint, he'll bring a little machine in there and it'll make some noise and he'll do some things. And so just be cognizant of that. All right. Hey guys, we had to take a short little break, but we are back. We were talking about, you know, a lot of these other auxiliary spaces, CTs, x-rays, mammos, and how they need to, you need to coordinate with your vendors. You know, it's all leading up to this really two day push for this install. You're gonna have drawings from these vendors, whether it's GE, Siemens, Samsung, whoever might be the manufacturer of these pieces of equipment. You know, x-rays start at like 250 grand, CTs are like a million, MRIs are a few million. So it's gonna be, you know, these expensive pieces of equipment, they're gonna have their own unique uh, requirements. They need certain paths to get to the room and you need to make sure that those are prepared, laid out, so that when that truck shows up, those guys can get rolling. Yeah, and that's a good point. Also understanding the size of the equipment. 
I don't know that you'd ever forget this, but from a door opening standpoint, you want to make sure it's going to fit through before it gets there and you're trying to push it through. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we've had projects too, where for like CTs, we knew it wasn't going to fit in the door um, and the hallways to get there. So they, they just took out the wall and then put it in and then put the wall back up and this yep. was an exterior wall. Um, so they made sure that they left that gap and opening uh, in the wall so that when the CT showed up, they could back the truck up to the outside of the outpatient building. I mean, it was a new ground up building um, and slide the CT out and put it in. And then they'd, you know, go back once the install was done that they then put up the rest of the wall. Yeah. So if, if you do have the access or ability to take a wall down and just get the equipment in there, that's what a phenomenal way to do it. If you can. And there's some instances you can't. Yeah, or, you know, sky crane or. <laughs> yeah, however you're going to get that bad boy in there. Just know it's not coming out. Right, that thing's staying in there forever. And one good tidbit to do as we were talking about, you, you mentioned there's specific Siemens GE people that you're dealing with. One thing that'd be a great idea as you guys start to do rough in is even do, now that Zoom and FaceTime and everything's so acceptable, do some type of call like that before, well before they come out. Uh, there's instances to where if they have longer runs than they were intending to run, they don't bring enough material to make that happen. And if, if they don't have enough, they have to splice it and then you start disintegrating really the clarity of, of the images that you're starting to get. So those guys need that information beforehand too. That can easily be missed if you think, hey, we just had to move it, you know, 10 feet in this direction, but now it's, you know, a 15 foot longer cable run and they just didn't have that planned for. So having those calls beforehand, well beforehand, even if it's a five minute run through just to show those guys what you got going on, we'll, we'll pay massive dividends in the tail end. Yeah, I mean, they're custom cutting that cable in the factory to make sure that you know, terminations are correct. And it's not always something that you can just field splice for, for what they're doing. Um, and usually those are some of the last things to go in to a building. You know, they are final setup and then they want to get those things up and running because typically, especially you look at like primary care outpatient stuff, uh, those are the money makers for those facilities. So they, uh, they want those up and running as quick as possible. Oh, yeah, not to mention your GEs and, and those guys. I mean, they're on a set schedule, too. Those guys are there essentially for a week. And then they've got to go to the next one that they're putting in in, in a totally different state, you know. So it's, it, it'll, it'll save you a lot of headaches just by doing a little bit of pre-work. Yeah, and that's, I mean, again, like for ORs, if you're dealing with Striker, whoever, you know, it's the same thing with those guys. You need to, you know, make sure that the booms are in the right location, the equipment's in the right stuff, and they have them, you know, because again, their install teams are coming in from wherever um, to then leave to go somewhere else. And if you don't have them planned properly, you know, it can be a huge delay to your project because they don't have techs to, you know, that are just floating and don't have anything to do. Those guys are packed and they're all over the, the country really um, to do it. And that goes for all this equipment that we're talking about. Yeah, because we have, so we're in Kalamazoo, Michigan is where our our main hub is which is also headquarters for striker now we've we've worked with them on multiple different projects and we've had a couple projects to where 
that it was still an issue due to the fact that we had to rework some things because those guys weren't even from that area. And even with it being right down the road, it still wasn't like, oh, we could just make it happen super easy. It, it's, it's not that easy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, these guys are super specialized in what they do, you know, guys and gals that, you know, troubleshoot and install these pieces of equipment. It's a very specialized thing. Not every state always has a project going on with them. So, I mean, they're traveling and flying all over the country to, to make this happen. With any of these, what are, we've kind of gone over design characteristics and considerations. Um, one thing I will say for CTs in particular is on the lighting standpoint, a lot of locations are putting in more and more of these kind of scenic panels on the ceiling. So especially if you're doing like a children's thing or primary care where it could be a ch child, an adult, whatever, when you're on your back in a tube, you might not always feel the greatest. So looking up at like some clouds or some scenic picture or landscape or whatever the theme might be, um, the interiors people have some say in this, but there's going to be some lighting uh, considerations to go in for these big panels and kind of sky or whatever <laughs> landscapes go in. It could be dinosaurs, it could be birds, it could be a lot of different things depending on the theme of uh, this room in particular. Yeah, and they used to be just painted different ceiling tiles, but now it's uh, now they're awesome, and they've got different lights tied into them, and things you can change the scenery. I mean, it, it's getting from a technology standpoint, it's it's impressive. Yeah, just I mean, a lot of people are uh, claustrophobic or don't like the tube or the whirring or whatever, um, especially like in MRIs, but even CTs, you know, with the smaller ring, but still. You're, you're in something, you're on your back primarily, um, you know, you want something nice to look at while you're, you're going through this. Um, from a lighting standpoint, in x-rays, they want it really, really dark. Um, like x-ray techs, it's surprising how dark they want it. So from a lighting standpoint, 1% doesn't really cut it on a dimming uh, piece for it because you really need to go, you know, to 30, 40 foot candles for cleaning purposes. But when they're actually x-raying somebody, they want it down to like 0.1% of the lights. I mean, as dim as they can get and still see, um, that's a big thing for lighting for a lot of these x-ray techs. They want it pretty dark. Um, mechanically, there's not, you need some more airflow and they'll say it on the cut sheets for these equipment, uh, especially like CTs and x-rays, MAMOs, you know, they're, they're not big heat producers, CTs to a certain extent. Now, MRIs, they're going to have its own cooling system, own um, chiller, basically, to, to run water through these, because MRIs do produce a lot of heat. Um, anything that you want to add to, to any of these, Eric? I think from a MEP, I think you nailed it in regards to, from a mechanical standpoint, there's not a whole lot of different requirements in those rooms outside of the ones that you mentioned that need that do produce a little bit more heat. Um, and, and I don't think they produce nearly as much as they used to. So um, that's gotten a heck of a lot better. So um, yeah, there's nothing super critical in that aspect. And from an electrical standpoint, I think that the main thing is just what's feeding the equipment. There's not a whole lot of auxiliary equipment going on in there outside of just that main piece 
of equipment. Um, so there's not a whole lot of other electrical demands inside of that room. Um, so no, I think it, I think you nailed it, covered it. Any other big tips for you know CT, X-ray, mammo? We're seeing more of the more come out of the hospital, go to primary care, so it's a little easier to to deal with. Primary care gets to generate a little more money. Um, you know, they don't quite get the hospital rates, but it's still been generous enough, especially because rates have been pushed more to primary care um, and going in and getting a quick x-ray versus trek to the hospital. You know, you go to your primary care doctor, then you need to get a trek to the hospital, get an x-ray, and then come back and um, makes things just a little more convenient. But any other tips or design considerations when we're talking about, uh, especially CT, x-ray, and mammo, you're never really going to see an MRI outside of a hospital. Um, but like CT, X-ray, mammo, what are you what are you seeing? Yeah, I mean you are starting to see a shift into outpatient, which is is great. I mean it becomes a little more accessible for all parties involved, and it really, from a install standpoint, becomes I don't want to call it simpler, but it becomes simpler due to the fact that you're not dealing with a hospital occupancy type settings, which just brings a whole litany of different concerns as you start to do projects. Um, so that does make life a little bit easier from an install standpoint, just from a functionality and operational standpoint of shutting certain parts down of the, of the hospital. Um, the install aspect is still incredibly difficult, but uh, you're no longer working in a hospital, which is, is, is helpful. Um, most of them are more in like a business occupancy standpoint, um, which is easy to maneuver, easier to maneuver around. And Eric, in case they couldn't find you last time, where can they find you? Yep, so you can find uh, my info on our website, which is compliance1, all spelled out, group.com. And then also you can find me on LinkedIn, Eric Kella, K-E-L-L-A. And uh, yeah, so that's where, you, that's where you can track him down, my friend. Awesome. Eric, it was great chatting. Great having you on the podcast. And for everyone out there, if you're doing hospital construction, anything like that, you know, go check Eric out. Send uh, some questions in if you want us to do another segment, talk more about hospital construction and healthcare in particular. But guys, until next time, thank you for listening.